So I'm glad that you're here in person. Those of you who are able to be here, and if you're, you're joining us online, thank you for being here. This is part three of a series that we're calling Battling Mediocrity. In the introduction to this series on the first Sunday of the new year, we said that a lot of times we end up feeling like we're putting in time. And what happens is we end up just putting in time. It's just like doing time, right? And we ask ourselves, essentially this is the question we ask ourselves, is, is this as good as it gets? So we introduced this series back on January 2nd, and we were turning the corner into a new year. And since now we're into the fourth week of the new year, let me just ask you, how's this new year treating you anyway? It's already so much better than last year, right? Like so much better, just magically so much better. Remember last year? The longest year in our memories, right? Uh, I was listening to a podcast the other day, and they were talking about Christmas services and doing weird like hybrid church online in-person Christmas services and how what a challenge that has been and they're like yeah two years ago when we did church online Christmas and they're like wait a minute that was just last year and I'm like yeah I can identify with that I think we all can um, so yeah last year was long but nothing really changes when you turn the calendar into a new year nothing just automatically changes right but I for one love a new year I love the symbolism of a fresh start. Um, I think our calendar affords us opportunities to just pause and take a good look. But in reality, there's nothing magical or mystical about turning the page on a calendar. But there's something about a new year that kind of emphasizes the possibilities and the potential. It's like saying there's a new opportunity here. So I absolutely believe that any day of any month of any year can be the day that you turn over a new leaf and, and get a fresh start, right? But I thought, why not take a step back uh, at the beginning of the year and acknowledge the opportunity the new year presents us, and let's get into some stuff and uh, look at some things in our lives where we could push forward, maybe from mediocre to great, right? Uh, maybe do a course correction to steer away from the drift toward mediocrity. Well, here's the thing. We believe, and this is one of the core values of our church at Faith Community, we believe, and the basis for it is found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, that we believe that excellence honors God and inspires people. Excellence honors God and inspires people. And if mediocrity is defined as ordinariness, you know, of moderate quality or value, that implies some kind of comparison, right? Like, if something is to be deemed mediocre, what's the standard? What are we comparing it to? two. Well, the same goes for excellence. And we define excellence, this has been a conversation for 25 years around here, because we tend to lean into what we think is perfection. That's not what we're talking about. Excellence is defined as the very best that we can do. So I guess there's a comparison element to that as well, right? Whether we're talking about mediocrity or whether we're talking about excellence. But if we really look at this, excellence isn't based on comparing ourselves, listen, to anyone else. Excellence is based on looking honestly at our own efforts, at our own diligence, at our own work ethic. In establishing a standard for excellence, the only thing we're comparing ourselves to is ourselves. Like, is this effort I just put in the very best I can do? I mean, is it? So we need to be honest with ourselves here. 
So when we're talking about mediocrity and our definition of what does mediocre look like when it comes to marriage, when it comes to family life, when it comes to work life or my finances or my spiritual growth or my engagement with the work of God in the world, Jesus called it the kingdom of God. What does mediocre look like in all of these realms? The answer to that isn't based on some kind of external analysis. The answer to that question isn't determined by what anyone else is doing or not doing. It isn't some kind of average of all the people in your life. Because comparing yourself to anyone else isn't the standard. The standard for identifying excellence and the standard for identifying mediocrity in your life is an honest assessment of what is the best you can bring. Are you bringing your best? Or are you bringing something less than your best? That's the question. That's different than looking around and comparing your situation to someone else's and beating yourself up because you just aren't as good at, you know, whatever they are. And, and that's different than looking around and comparing yourself to someone else and thinking, you know, that you're really something special, you know, because look at how good you're doing at fill in the blank. We're not talking about comparison with someone else. What we're talking about is, is, is this excellence or have, have I settled for mediocre in light of what I know I could be bringing to this situation? And see, I think excellence is worth working towards in every area of our lives because God deserves the best we can bring. So think about this. God created us for this life for a purpose. And when you engage in that purpose, God is honored by that. And when you think about like your workplace, when you think about your family, when you think about your home, when you think about your marriage, you think about this church, uh, wouldn't it be amazing if in your life, in these environments where if everyone you did life with, if mediocrity was something that was resisted, like if the people around you just kind of worked together to battle the the drift towards mediocrity. Can you imagine if everyone that you find yourself doing life with, in every environment you find yourself doing life, if all of these were places full of engagement and full of passion? So in this battle against mediocrity, I'm suggesting we need to ask ourselves this question. Why am I allowing what is good to stand in the way of what could be great? Because we tend to be like, well, I got a good job. I got a good marriage. I guess our church is pretty good. But okay, but what if God has something great in mind? Like, what if work could be great? What if your marriage, stale and predictable and comfortable as it is, what if it could be great? What if your family life, which is decent and maybe from the outside looking in, people are like, you've got a great family there. But what if you're going, I don't think it's that great. But what if it really could be great? Like, what if? And, and what I mean by that is, what if we fully realize the potential of what God wanted us to know and experience in our lives? So we're talking about battling mediocrity, and so far in this series, we've talked a little bit about the workplace and, and what battling mediocrity might look like there in the workplace. We looked at a passage in Ephesians where the Apostle Paul said, work with enthusiasm, which literally means be filled with God. That's what, liter- that's what enthusiasm means. Work with enthusiasm as though you're working for the Lord rather than for people. And then we said that as we work with enthusiasm, as though we're working for the Lord, we'll be reminded that fulfillment doesn't come from what we get out of our work experience, but in this case, it comes from what we put into it. 
And what we took away from that a few weeks ago, our action step was then in that environment to fully engage our hearts because God always does his best work with fully engaged hearts. He just does. And then last week, we talked about uh, taking initiative and how important taking initiative is when it comes to battling mediocrity because if all we're doing is looking at a problem, thinking someone should do something about that, but we aren't doing anything about it. Like we aren't having the conversations that we need to have. We aren't working a plan. We aren't engaging with the situation. We aren't taking any action. We aren't showing any initiative. Nothing happens except the drift towards mediocrity. We talked about the story of David and his confrontation with Goliath. And we talked about how David took initiative and he saw the situation for what it was. He asked some questions. He had a conversation with the king and he took action. And we said that if you're waiting for somebody someday, somewhere, somehow to do something, maybe the someone you're waiting for is you. If you're wondering like where God is, like why hasn't God acted on this yet? Why hasn't God answered my prayer yet? Maybe the someone God is waiting for is you. Then we looked at a passage in Proverbs last week and we talked about how we use our time and how susceptible we are to distraction. And we talked about diligence and, what, and that distraction is what keeps us from being diligent and ultimately that it's our diligence over distraction that brings meaning to our time. So I've been thinking about this idea of mediocrity and I realized that we could easily fall into the trap of defining and identifying mediocrity by comparing ourselves to others. Like my life is just mediocre compared to, but that's not a good indicator of mediocrity. The baseline for mediocrity should be about looking at ourselves in light of what we're capable of, in light of what our potential is, in light of what God really wants for us. So today, we're going to talk about comparison and where that leads very quickly. We've all had that moment. It's at its worst on social media. Because you all have people and you're like, oh, they hung out last night? Why didn't I get invited? Or man, they went to Hawaii again? Must be nice. And we find ourselves thinking like, I want that life. I want that husband, I want that wife, I want that house, I want that job, I want that job with the corner office and all the vacation time. I want to look better, I want to feel better, I want that life, that's what I want. And it's endless, it's a never-ending thing. And so today as we talk about battling mediocrity, we're going to talk about compa uh, comparison. And in particular, I want to talk about where it leads, which is envy. Here's the thing about envy. Left unaddressed, it destroys our souls. It kills our relationships with others, with the world around us, and ultimately has a power to destroy our relationship with God. So let's define envy first. A couple statements I want to make as a definition. First, envy is a sorrow which one entertains at another's well-being because of a view that one's own excellence is in consequence lessened. In other words, we're sad that something good is happening to someone else. That's envy. It's emotion that occurs when a person lacks another's superior quality, achievement, or possession, and either desires it or wishes that the other lacked it. That's a darker view. It's a darker view of envy than we tend to think of because we tend to confuse envy and jealousy. 
See, jealousy is a feeling of unhappiness caused by wanting something that someone else has, whereas envy goes a step beyond that because it not only wants what someone else has, but if we can't have it, we don't want them to have it either. And that's pretty messed up. Aristotle defined envy as pain at the sight of another's good fortune, stirred by those who have what we ought to have. Thomas Aquinas said, Envy is contrary to charity, where the soul derives its spiritual life. Charity rejoices in our neighbor's good, while envy grieves over it. So when we look around at other people, and as a result of seeing their lives, or at least as they present them, and we start to lack contentment in our own lives, there's a sickness that begins to happen at a soul level. And it's so prevalent and honestly quite natural for us, we barely think of it, and yet it is totally deadly for our emotional health and our relational health and our spiritual health. Comparison to other people kills contentment in our life. That's the toxicity of it. But contentment, when you think about it, is what we all want. And for our culture, it's kind of a way of life. It's the basis of every advertising campaign, right? You you get this, and it's going to improve your life somehow. I guarantee, like everyone else I know has it, you got to get it. There's a, that's a, it's a picture of the good life, right? That constant nagging that, that you're behind, that you're missing something, and you need that thing to get ahead or that experience to get it. You need to win the comparison game so you can finally find contentment. So what does the Bible have to say? The Bible says a lot about envy. In the book of Genesis, envy is the motivation behind Cain murdering his brother Abel. Cain envied Abel because God favored Abel's sacrifice over Cain's. And literally, we're like in chapter 4 of the whole story, right? And the sin of murder is already introduced, and it's driven by envy. In the book of Exodus, the the 10th commandment forbids us from coveting our neighbor's stuff, our neighbor's wife, our neighbor's lifestyle, and urges us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Proverbs 14 says, envy makes the bones rot. Ever felt that in your life? You know what that's describing, you know? Proverbs 23 says, Do not let your heart envy sinners. Matthew 27 says, Pilate knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. Have you ever picked up on that? That it was envy that killed Jesus. Mark 7, Jesus says, Out of the heart comes envy, slander, pride, murders, all in the same list. Romans 1 says they're full of envy, murder, same list. Galatians 5, envy, drunkenness, orgies, same list. James 3 says don't harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts. 1 Corinthians 3 says you are still controlled by your sinful nature. Here's how I know, because you are jealous of one another and you quarrel with one another. Doesn't that prove you're controlled by your, jeal- by your sinful nature? 1 Corinthians 13 says love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy. Galatians 5 says, let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. 1 Peter says, rid yourself of all malice, of all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. And Psalm 37 says, do not fret because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither, like green plants, they'll soon die away. The Bible's pretty clear. In telling us that envy doesn't coexist with true spiritual wisdom but with a false, earthly, unspiritual wisdom. Psychology makes a distinction between a malicious envy and a benign envy. So malicious envy 
is an unpleasant emotion that causes the envious person to want to bring down the better off, right? The, the, uh, even at their own cost. Well, benign envy involves a recognition of others being better off, but causes the envious person to aspire to be as good. So don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with aspiring to be like someone who has achieved something or has successful or whatever. That can be a good thing. Like that, we call it inspiration, right? When we are inspired by the life of another person. But when it reaches a point of dominating your life and you can't shake it, and it causes you then to resent them deep down, really, if you're honest, to wish for their downfall. The Bible considers that kind of envy sin, because it goes against the kind of life Jesus is calling us to. Because what is a Christian anyway? Like what is the overarching call of a follower of Jesus? It is, is it not to love God and love your neighbor? To love others? Like what does it mean to love your neighbor? To love is to will the good of another person. Our very goal in life should be to will good things on our neighbors, not to be sad about good things happening to someone else who has something, and I don't. So when God says not to covet, it's not even so much about possessions. It is about possessions, but it's much bigger than that. It's about coveting after a kind of life. And let's just, let's just talk about this, about how social media feeds this. And I know in this room, we're talking primarily about Facebook and maybe Instagram, not too many TikTokers in here, I don't think, but you know who you are. You, you, on social media, you see the travel pictures, and you see the great marriage, and you see the money, and you see the kids, and you see the beauty, and see all these experiences and that you think you should be having, and you're like, but my house isn't that nice. I'm not taking any pictures of my house, because like my, and my husband's not that great, and my wife doesn't treat me like that. But, uh, what, they're on vacation again? You know, they're eating at another restaurant? Like, they traded their car again? And we're, we're talking about people who, listen, we consider friends, right? Be- we do, because everyone on, that we're on social media with is our friends. That's what Facebook says. My friends, they're my friends, my friends list. And I mean, I'm not going to follow someone on Instagram who's not my friend. I'm being a little facetious here, did you pick that up? A little sarcastic. But we're talking about the successes and achievements and experiences in our friends' lives that we should be happy for them, but instead we drift towards jealousy and then we become envious and we start to resent them. And we look at all their pictures and the way that they have curated their image, but we're buying into it and we're like, well, I'm not, uh, not going to be like that. Like, it's, it's just not going to happen. And we aren't joining them in their joy and it starts to wear away at our own contentment and begins destroy, to destroy our own sense of peace because we're comparing. And here's what ends up happening. Envy becomes a very lonely sin because it's focused only on the self. Like, why can't I have that? Why do they get that and I don't? Why do they have that experience and I haven't? And I think viewing the world through that lens only leads to a deeper and deeper discontent and misery. Self-pity is born out of envy. And so that's the hard part. Because to follow Jesus, we have to be willing to give up a piece of ourselves. That's what discipleship is. Jesus said it's to pick up your cross and what? Deny yourself and follow me. So there's like no room for a comparison there. There's no room for envy in that life, in the life of discipleship, in the life of apprenticeship to Jesus because following Jesus requires that we fully accept our lives and that we deny ourselves some things. And the Apostle Paul would say to us that it's in this journey that we learn the secret of contentment. 
Luke Ferry, who's a philosopher, says, we live virtually all our lives somewhere between memories and aspirations, somewhere between past and future, somewhere between nostalgia and expectation. We imagine we'd be much happier with new shoes, a faster computer, a bigger home, more exotic holidays, different friends. But by regretting the past or guessing about the future, we end up missing the only life worth living, the one which proceeds from the here and now and deserves to be saved. So think about that. We end up missing the only life worth living, the one which proceeds from the here and now and deserves to be saved. That's what comparison steals from us, the here and now. So when you're honest with with yourself, when you realize you're trapped into this pattern of comparison to others, when we're honest, I think you start to understand something about yourself. And you start to say, man, I only have this moment in front of me. Like, this is all I have. What's in front of me? Let's savor this. Let's make the most of this. I don't want to get to the end of my life and regret the fact that I spent half of my time comparing my life to other people's lives and envying what they had. Because when you compare yourself to others, there's only emotional pain. Because you're, you're always going to find someone better at whatever than you. You're always going to find someone richer than you. You're always going to find someone whose vacations are better than yours. You're always going to find someone whose marriage seems to be thriving better than yours. You're always going to find someone with more power and influence than you. I mean, like, it's endless. And in the end, when you're comparing, all you get in the end is a lack of self-worth and a lower self-esteem. But if we learn to celebrate others, that's what eliminates envy. Like, this is the litmus test of how we love our neighbor, right? Like, do we bless others? Do we encourage others? Do we champion and do we celebrate when others win? Here's the solution. Here's how we fight comparison and envy. Philippians 4 says this. This is the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, can I just, I just have, I have pet peeves. It's a, it's a personal thing I'm dealing with. But I have, this verse 13 is used out of context all over the place. People claim it to mean something it doesn't mean. This verse isn't about, you can do anything through Jesus. That's not what this verse means. It's not about being able to accomplish anything. And I only say that because I think it's important when we try to attach meaning to something in Scripture that God never intended, and then we set ourselves up for disappointment because we think God let us down when God never said it in the first place. Paul is talking about the secret of contentment. Paul said, I've, I've had a lot of money. I've had no money. I've had freedom. I've been in prison. I've been in positions of power. I've been arrested and beaten and left for dead. And whatever my circumstances are, I have learned to be content in Christ. So contentment is the key. The only way to avoid the comparison trap and to avoid the sin of envy is not to focus on always beating the cycle of envy. The secret is to love Jesus more than the stuff that you think brings you contentment, more than the things that you think would solidify your identity. And when we live that way, envy dies. The power of comparison is diminished. 
and, and kindness and a desire for good things to come to other people flows from us. And that is the cure for comparison that flows out of your identity in Jesus. So we've got to grow our capacity for charity in our hearts for anyone and everyone around us, even if it means we don't benefit or at least we don't see the benefit. And when we follow comparison to its natural end, we land at envy. And envy is dark, right? It says not only, not only do you deserve this, not only do you deserve someone else's life, but they don't deserve it. And if we believe that, we can't truly love them as we love ourselves, which is what Jesus has called us to do. And discontentment, eventually, unchecked, eventually finds its way into our relationship with God. Because as long as we believe that he's the one who has blessed this other person in the way that we want to be blessed, and we are discontent with the amount of blessing that God's given us, because that's what we're saying, and if we believe that to be true, and honestly, that's a messed up theology right there, and I'm not saying it is true, but I'm saying if we believe it is true, then we will begin to withhold love from God because we believe He isn't blessing us the way He's blessing someone else, and that someone else isn't nearly as deserving as we are, like obviously, right? And again, there's a lot that's messed up there, but that's where we get trapped. And envy, that is the result of our comparison, finds a way to create distance between us and God. Comparison is dangerous and envy is sinful because it says that God is not generous enough toward you, that Jesus is not enough for you. So if we're being honest, sometimes we actually find ourselves believing that the reason we're envious of the other person, like after we've played the comparison game long enough, the reason we're envious of the other person is because we think their happiness is a sign that they're blessed and loved and accepted and we're not. And without even realizing it, we lick our wounds, we play the victim card, and we gossip, and we nurse grudges, and we plan revenge, and it shrivels our soul. Comparison and the envy that results from that can be countered with kindness. Because kindness desires the happiness and the flourishing of another person. Kindness is composed not not of heroic acts of virtue, but small, daily, regular acts of goodness towards another person. Kindness rejoices in the good of others rather than being angry and resentful and jealous over the good that comes to another that you think isn't coming to you. And here's the thing. The maturing, deepening follower of Jesus, isn't that where we want to be? The maturing, deepening follower of Jesus has come to the place that he or she knows that they are loved unconditionally. If you consider yourself a maturing, deepening follower of Jesus, you've arrived at that point. Like, I know where I stand with Jesus. I am loved unconditionally. But at the heart of the, of the envious person who's trapped in this comparison spiral, there's this deep sadness and even self-loathing. And rescue from the trap of comparison, I believe, is found in a profound encounter with the one who loves us beyond our understanding. And when we live with a sense and understand that I am loved by God and I am His child, then I don't need to be envious of anyone. Envy, at its root, calls into question God's very goodness toward us. Think about that. 
Envy calls into question God's very goodness toward us. Envy demonstrates that we don't love God with all we are because He's not enough for us. It occurred to me as I was preparing this message that I think I've only spoken um, one or two times in my whole life on envy, like as the central theme of a sermon. And I've been preaching for 30 years and, um, well, maybe longer than that because I know I look young. I, I am young and I look younger. I know that I understand that and the lights really help with that. But um, I preached my first sermon uh, 40 years ago. In a couple months, it'll be 40 years since I preached my first sermon. You're like, yeah, but when you were three, no, I, I know. Thank you. It's a prodigy. I was 13. I literally was. So yeah, I've been doing this for a while. I got boxes filled with my old sermon notes, the ones that we used to write on paper before computers. And I got like 26 or 27 years of sermon notes backed up on the cloud, right? But I don't think I've, I don't know if I've ever preached an entire sermon on where the central point was about envy. And I got to think about this, like why is that? Why have I missed this? Well, one of the things I like to do as often as possible is to address topics that you ask me to talk about. That's why I've done a lot of sermons on prayer and God's will and being a good representative of Jesus in the workplace and, you know, how can you be a Cowboys fan in New England for 30 plus years, like those kinds of things. That's why I like to talk about those things. But I've, oh, wow, that's a scab. But I've only spoken a couple times about this topic and even then not as a central theme. And maybe it's because um, I don't have many conversations where we're like, you know what? I've been comparing myself to other people. I got a real problem with envy. It'd be really helpful uh, to hear some teaching on that from the podium on Sunday. That would be really helpful to me because I have a real struggle with envy. Because <laughs> the truth is like, none of us think we're envious, right? When we're comparing ourselves to others and wondering why God doesn't bless us the way that he's blessed someone else, uh, we don't think of that as being envious. Uh, we just would like our lives to be a little bit easier. That's all we're asking for. We've referenced the story of King Saul and David in the Old Testament a few times recently, and I think every Sunday this year so far. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, after David had killed Goliath and the Philistines are defeated, it says this in 1 Samuel 18. It says, When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with timbrels and lyres. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands. Ooh, Saul. David is tens of thousands, yeah. And Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. He says, they have credited David with tens of thousands, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. You know what that means? He was looking for an opportunity to kill him. Right, we know that because we know the rest of the story. There's so many layers to this, but here's the deal. Saul's envy took him over like envy can ruin a whole life that's that's what that's how Saul's story played out and I don't think we take it very seriously and what makes it so serious is that it can start so small little comparison here little comparison there but it has the potential to grow to a point where it can destroy us so I think there are a couple signs that envy has taken root number one is that we're unable to enjoy and appreciate and celebrate what someone else has because of comparison. Just a sign. If you find yourself unable to enjoy and celebrate what someone else has. Second sign is that we're unable to enjoy what we have because of resentment. 
David has 10,000, but I only have 1,000. Saul couldn't just say, hey, look at his accomplishments. Wow, that is amazing. Look at this victory. We all benefited. Look how much they appreciate him and love him. That's awesome. I'm so happy for him. I wonder how Saul's story would have played out if that had been his angle. When envy has taken root, we aren't able to appreciate what someone else has. We can't appreciate her happiness. We can't appreciate his success without comparing ourselves. Envy makes everything about us. We just can't appreciate the fact that there's somebody out there who's happily married and you're like, yeah, but I'm not. And we can't appreciate someone who's achieved this and achieved that and having success without saying, yeah, but I haven't. When's my turn? Maybe you've never seen this in yourself, but I think we can say that the root of envy is this, verse 8. First Samuel 18 says, Saul was very angry. So I think it's possible, of course it is, to want to be better in life and not be envious. Like, like we read the Gospels and you see Jesus, right? And so much more loving than we are, so much more, so much wiser, so much gentler, so much everything, right? And, and like, I want to be like that and I want to love like that and I want to be that wise and I want to be that gentle. That's not envy, that's a longing. That's, that's a joy that motivates you. But envy is begrudging someone when they have what you want to have and you resent it. In church tradition, there's a list of seven deadly sins, and I'm not really going to speak to the validity of that list or where it came from or why we call it that, but uh, it's well known, right? And if there, uh, the question is, are there any sins worse than any other sins? And we probably don't have time to get into that today. Here's the list. Pride, envy, wrath, gluttony, lust, sloth, and greed. You can make the argument, and you look at this list, that uh, six of these seven sins will, ev- like, yes, they will, they will all eventually destroy you, right? But for six of them, for a while, actually feel pretty good. They're enjoyable for a while. Greed, lust, gluttony, gluttony, gluttony right? But whatever. Uh, it's a result. But every other quote-unquote deadly sin gives you some pleasure, at least for a while, but envy never feels good. It just sucks the joy out of your life like immediately. And it doesn't take much at all before all the joy is just sucked out. Don't underestimate what it can do in our lives. It's bondage. You start with a little comparison and eventually it turns into a spirit of envy and you lose control. And the more you give in to envy, the more you lose the ability to live free. So where does this all leave us? Like, is there anything wrong with wanting a healthy relationship? Is there anything wrong with wanting our family look a certain way? Is there anything wrong with wanting a few nicer things? Is there anything wrong with wanting some nice experiences for our kids, of course? Is there anything wrong with wanting a little more financial stability so I can be more generous, of course? Well, here's a different question. Like, if we want these things, how are we possibly going to avoid envy when we compare ourselves to others? Like, what's the plan? How do we think this is actually going to happen? I think it really all comes down to knowing who we are in Jesus, knowing how we're seen by our Heavenly Father, and learning to walk in that assurance. Because here's the deal. We're not going to get everything in life. You're not going to have a perfect family. Not everything's going to go well for you. But we trust in the one who is for us, in the one who delights in us, and we live with a a sense of the presence of God in the every moment. 
And that's how we deal with the incompleteness of this world. Thank you for listening. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to sit in an honest place. To be honest with ourselves. To be honest with the Holy Spirit in our lives. When we ask these questions of ourselves, like, is this true of us? I pray that we would be honest. Even when it's uncomfortable. Even when it's not that flattering. And I pray that that might lead to a shift in our perspective. Maybe even a kind of contentment that nothing in this world can offer anyway. And in that contentment, when we become defined by everything that is the opposite of envy. Because like the Apostle Paul, we've known what it is to have plenty. We've known what it is to need. I pray that we would lean into what Paul called the secret of contentment. That is through Jesus. It's through Jesus who gives us strength. We want to be people who flourish in you. Thank you for the process that you have us in, this thing we call discipleship and following Jesus, the things you're showing us about ourselves. May we, on a daily basis, bit by bit, be more and more like Jesus. And we thank you in Jesus' name.